Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Sonika Garcia. And I'm Brad Davidson, and this is Breaking the Code. A podcast series focused on debunking the myths about behavioral science and arming our listeners with the information they need to make sense of behavioral science and to help them apply it to their work as marketers. So welcome back, everyone. Today, we are lucky enough to have our second special guest. Today, we have Andrew Gardner, who is the Chief Strategy Officer for Havas Links, which is our agency out in Manchester. Brad and I and the medical anthropology team have been lucky to work with Andy on quite a few projects. And the collaboration with Andy and his team has been wonderful. I mean, he is so smart and you'll you'll get to hear from him, um, not just overall strategy, but really what it takes to know our audience on a deeper level. A lot of what we talk about on this podcast is understanding our audience on a human level and having the right approach to really understanding them and getting those true insights to help understand why they make the decisions that they do. So Andy, thanks so much for being here. Hello, thanks for having me along. So I just want to make sure he's he's not just the head of Havas Links, he's the head of strategy for Havas Links Group, which is sort of a, a fairly large number of organizations out on the other side of the pond. And Andrew and I got to know each other through pandemic. We worked on something called Behind the Mask, which was a study looking at how doctors were handling things in the U.S. and globally. And it was through those discussions with Andrew that I really got a perspective on how different things can be over in the the European sphere of communications. So one of the things I wanted to ask Andrew about and that we really wanted to focus on is, you know, we're the only country, the United States and New Zealand are the only countries in the world that allow direct consumer advertising for healthcare products that are prescribed. And that leads to some very interesting discussions with co-promotes and things like that, where what do you do in America versus what do you do in, you know, the European Union and England. But it also just underlines a very different approach to medicine, to communicating about products. So, Andrew, what is like the significant difference in your opinion about advertising to consumers, meaning people who might take these products versus doctors, people who are going to prescribe these products. And why is it, you know, so important that we have that distinction? It's yeah, it's an interesting question. And I think it it sort of goes back to the the heart of any purchase decision that's going on where knowledge experience and skill completely dictate sort of how well you make that decision and how those evolve over time and you've got a very big power imbalance in in european markets and anywhere outside of the us where the the level of knowledge that someone has before um you know they uh, are unfortunately um sort of set upon with a disease that they've not not come across before unless it's been something they've seen in a family member it's everything's new whereas to the doctor it's like everything's very standard and i've seen you know the patient's experiencing it for the first time and so at a european level you're kind of reliant on dr google whereas sort of in america at least you've got these uh these wonderful TV spots, which are persuading you that it's perfectly fine to have this condition yeah, or that I, condition as you as that you certainly was happily the, through the park. Um, yeah, so I think that probably the, shapes things quite a bit. It does. And that was the basis upon which the FDA initially approved direct-to-consumer advertising that you could use the, the greatest 
sort of broadcast medium ever invented to to educate millions of people all at once, 30 seconds at a time about healthcare conditions. Educate was the part that they, I think, uh, believed would happen more than sell. But, um, the, you know, the big debate is now is are we educating people or are we just selling them things? But to, to your point, you know, it's different selling something to somebody who's a professional and is going to use this as a tool versus somebody who's an end user and is going to take this as a product. So talk, talk about that a little bit. I know there's a gap in knowledge, but there's also a gap in, in your role in the use of this product. Yeah, I, I, I was just sort of thinking about the fact that regardless of how sophisticated Dr. Google sort of um, makes us feel, all patients by definition sort of start off um, with a naive understanding of uh, of what's ahead of them. Whereas the, that person on the other side of the prescription pad, through their knowledge and experience, are probably overstating their own confidence in knowing what that patient is going to want or need in, in that moment in time. So it's it's I think where you have to observe it is how does that how does that balance of power shift over time as you as you as you kind of experience a long term condition and how is how are patients over time making better judgments of of what they really value in terms of outcomes and what they're prepared to put up with to to achieve them there was some interesting research that looked at what you were prepared to do to put up with as uh, with an incurable cancer and so people who were asked who'd never had this cancer before you know they wanted all the heroics um, and they were willing to put up with like rounds and rounds of chemo um, but when they asked the same questions to senior oncologists they basically said put a blanket over me and leave they've, they've seen what it's like to to go through the actual treatments themselves and don't necessarily see it i think over time as as treatments have got better i think if you did that conversation now and it was a, a curable cancer or something that you could have uh you know car t for like that dynamic shifts so it's always evolving it's always changing into and i think it's it's up to us to understand where people are up to with that dynamic understand where the where the different interventions are going to make a difference or or, or not whether the doctor's feeling in desperate need of being able to give some good news to someone but can't and 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 th those are the things that you're kind of looking out for because doctors by definition need to sort of be there with some answers for you and and sort of have the confidence to say oh well yes i can i can definitely help you out whilst knowing at the same time but not that much or i i wish i could do more or the the, the secret emotions that they're sort of hanging on to you brought up emotions and that was actually my next question. So you talked a lot about, you know, the need. So like figuring out what the need of the doctor is. And when we do patient marketing, it's, just, it's something similar. But a lot of what we focus on with consumer marketing is that emotion and like what emotion do we want to elicit or what emotion do we want to reinforce um, when it comes to the patient. But for doctors, same thing. We try to take an emotional approach as well. But that's a struggle sometimes because what are the emotions that doctors are feeling? Is there an emotional component to HCP marketing? Um, well, firstly, I'm, I'm kind of a a real strong believer in the in the the emotional nature of every decision that we take, and and I but I think at heart we we, we 
there's room for us to be much more sophisticated as an industry. And it's something that as strategists we talk about a lot. And the, the, the mistake you hear is is when we're sort of um, thinking about emotions and communications, because you hear this sort of request for an idea to be more emotional. Can we have a more emotional idea? And the yeah. sort of the ham-fisted version of that is to create communications that sort of demonstrate the anguish that the patient's feeling in that moment to gain doctor sympathy it's like hey look at how awful your job is all day every day looking at these people um, and in some way expecting that to 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 resonate with a professional who's been kind of trained to to not engage in that sort of thing because it's not their yeah. job to to yeah. feel in the clinic it's their job to guide people in an unemotional way through that and mm. so when they're making prescribing decisions that's not what they're about we also know that communications that include both rational and emotional um sort of uh, messages and, and forms of messaging perform much better than those with either one alone so we've got to get it right and, and for me it's it's about trying to find the way in which an emotion, because if you think about emotion is in the instant, the feeling is the echo of that, and then mood is is what you're trying to sort of engage with people over the long term. It's those it's a message wrapped with an emotion becomes an actual learning experience that someone takes with them. And it's so much more potent than uh, than just explaining something. The phrase I like to use is you can't rationalize someone into loving you. I use the same one, but I use the verb lawyer. You can't lawyer someone into loving you like, well, but if you look at exhibit A, I'm perfect for you. It's like, and yet I don't love you. Um, but you touched uh, you you touched on something that I uh, is sort of a pet peeve of mine, actually. So that's part of the reason why we did this podcast, so I could vent my spleen about things that make me crazy. And one of them is the idea that we get asked as planners a lot to sort of up the emotional quotient. And uh, one time I wrote in a brief that doctors are cautious about change for certain types of very fragile patients. And the next time I saw the brief, a copywriter had changed it to terrified. And like that, yes, that is that is a higher order of emotion. It's also completely false because to your point, no doctor who chooses, let's say, cardiology is terrified that their patients would die. They wouldn't have chosen cardiology if they couldn't handle their patients dying. They would have chosen pediatrics or something like that. Like you, by the time you become a fully trained cardiologist, you are used to your patients with heart failure dying. You are not terrified of it, you know? And I think there's a there's this desire to project the emotions that we believe patients are feeling and we fairly certain patients are feeling onto the doctors at the simultaneous time. And that's just not true. I've been a hospital interpreter and you can't possibly feel the anguish that a parent feels every time you diagnose a child with cancer or you'd, you'd literally jump off a roof in a week. You know, it, it's just too hard. So, you know, I, I think it's, the part that I find really interesting and I'd love your take on is like finding the true emotions that professionals who deal with these difficult things every single day do feel. It's not like they're machines, to your point, they have emotions, but they don't feel the same emotions that their patients do. They couldn't. There, well, there there are things that doctors do enjoy. <laughs> and and that that's sort of that that part where to celebrate the successes becomes quite an easy 
an underarm pass as, as we you know underarm bowl um kind of thing use cricket terminology but because it's like a the the joy that a dermatologist feels when they recognize that someone's skin's cleared up and that you know they they've managed to achieve something visible which has had a it's going to have a lasting impact on that patient's life but they don't see what happens to the patient as they go out the door it's that instantaneous hey i did a good job i'll i'll pat myself on the back that's a kind of an, an easy one the the harder ones are like what is what's the emotion that you go through what's the when we talk you know when we talk about emotions in decision making what you're really talking about is bypassing decision making it's it's what is the right feeling in that moment so mm-hmm. it, it becomes natural to to make this decision over that decision that's what influences behavior prescribing behavior and it's how do you become what are the shortcuts what are the heuristics that we can elicit so that we're getting to what we need to be we don't need to get them to go on an emotional roller coaster like they're watching a a movie we we need them to emotionally feel that the product we're talking about is right in that moment of prescribing and it's that's the job it's not to try and entertain people unless entertaining them gets you to the point where it feels right feels natural in that moment so i think that those those are the bits that you're looking for and it takes time it takes a great deal of effort and one piece of research or one piece of quant is not going to give you the answer there it's speaking to a variety of different people learning what are the things that were completely odd to that doctor and what are the things that are useful and and sort of uh, are tropes that work across all all of the doctors and uh, and also kind of trying things out so you you test something and you look at the the puzzle on their face and then you try something else and you realize that oh yeah we're kind of onto something here and then build that over time and 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 work out what that is and then try and guide it through the creative process so that it doesn't get rinsed back to what a creative director feels the emotion should be in that situation you know oh well actually the the real story here is how patients feel about dot 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 no it's it's clinging on to the the truth and the insight that you you picked up at the beginning i think this title the the title of this episode will be clinging to the truth (laughs) (laughs) like yes i just see a bunch of planners trying to get on a raft like yeah like at the end of the titanic (laughs) exactly we're just clinging to the truth trying there's no room for you jack there's just truth yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) trying to think of a creative director called jack but yeah um as he sinks to the bottom Uh, yeah we we let him drown um No, we didn't. We love our creative directors, but it is interesting, this idea that emotion must be strongly felt to be um, influential to decision making isn't necessarily true, or at least, you know, it doesn't have to go up the scale of intensity of emotions, like quiet satisfaction can be a very strong emotion, you know, at the end of a, I'm a, I'm a teacher, I'm not a doctor, but, you know, at the end of a semester where I feel like I've done a good job and 32 students have learned what I wanted them to learn, something like that, that I don't go out and spike the football, but I feel good about it. You know, like you've executed my job as a professional. I imagine it's not totally dissimilar to how you feel after a good pitch as a planner. Like I've executed my job as a professional, you know, like that, that to me, and I I guess it's a question in the form of a statement that to me, when I think of emotions for professionals, it's how do I create 
that sense of satisfaction in a job well done as opposed to this guy wants to jump over the roof with joy. Like occasionally we get products we launch that are utterly transformative like that. But for the most part, they're just better than the last thing, which was pretty good, you know. But equally, they're transformative. And yeah. But that that transformation only happens once. I'm always thinking, you know, once you've right. explained that joy, what do you do the next day? Because, you know, you can't go through that twice. But we do need to build a relationship with these people. We do need to get them to remember the brand. Otherwise, all they're looking for is, OK, well, it was a 50 percent improvement today. If I can get a 51 percent improvement with something else tomorrow, then suddenly I've jumped ship again. So, it, you know, that's not long lasting just on the the utility of the product alone. And it's got to be something which connects with people on a much um, uh, yeah, much deeper level something which they they like you as for the 50% you give not just they like the 50% because that's I think some of that but I think some of that also yes and I think some of that comes from recognition genuine recognition of of their actual feelings as opposed to your imagined version of their feelings where they're doing a jig in the hallway and then they go to their next patient like it there's just too much going on yeah, I think to that point, it's like what you're saying, Brad, assuming what the emotion is for doctors. And then a big thing and going back to what you said before, Andy, is that thinking the patient emotion and the doctor emotion, there is this strong tie in and doctors should to, should feel or influenced by the way that their patients are feeling as strongly as we think that they are. I don't you know, I don't think that's always the case. So I think that's an important call out. This I is think great. The, the, the other thing I was just going to add to that. Yeah. Um, was I think it becomes a difficult one uh, at a client level because we can have a, a you know a nice friendly agency conversation about emotions and then they've got to go to their boss and go right. I like this communication because it's really emotional or it's got you know it's got a real emotional power to it and the boss right. goes what in the hell are you talking about and they can't back it up and so I think there's and then it's like, okay, well, we need to need to find this emotional connection in research. And then mm-hmm. it suddenly becomes very wishy-washy in terms of what you're looking for and and it gets rinsed out. But I think well, and I'm, if you break I'm on and record, it's like, oh, don't don't talk to me about this emotional garbage. But I think if you break it down into we we look at um from an effectiveness standpoint, you know, the communications in terms of, well, are we creating an emotional connection and then product manager scoffs and you go okay well let's talk about emotional valence do you feel negative can we ask them if they feel negative or positive about it and you're like okay right. I'm, I'm happy with yeah. that you know can we talk about emotional dimension you know what what does the brand or ad make you feel you know and then think about emotional intensity so how emotionally involved are you with the brand or, oh, well I can definitely answer all those questions or ask those questions and I'd be happy to get the response and it's like right we've now got a framework to work out whether this communication is working at an emotional level and right. it's like okay well there's some objectivity now to it it doesn't feel so wishy-washy mm-hmm. um, and i think that that's that's an important thing to get to as well yeah it is a great framework and you know the uh, we'll have to have you back on because i wanted to hear more about this idea that emotions lead to moods right but that'll probably have to be for another day. That's an interesting one. So uh, any last thoughts from your side of things, aside from the fact that, you know, advertising to patients you find slightly odd? 
which we've had a discussion many times about. But <laughs> any last thoughts on, uh, you know, emotion, doctors, advertising? Well, I think I'd be remiss not to mention the recent work that we've done um, from from our white paper perspective called Healing the Healers. And it builds mm -hmm. a lot on the work we've done, Brad, from Behind the Mask, where one of the issues that we've got, we talk about, oh, let's make a you know a, a happy emotion about the the treatment but in reality the all of the emotions that are going on in the healthcare system at the moment are like rampantly upset about most things You're super stressed you know super in stressed, every you know, possible you form know, we, of stress we talk yeah. about burnout and we're hearing from hcps about moral injury as being the 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 level of uh, discussion that's happening um, in, in that space. So you've kind of also got to think about how do you how do you enter a conversation when people are striking, when people are um, feeling at their lowest ebb. We're getting there, there are three doctors a week at the moment in the UK committing suicide. I mean, yeah, it's absolutely like so distressing to to watch and how do we how do we enter into that conversation with advertising to do the the jobs that we've got to do but do it in a way that's sympathetic to the audience that you're that you're talking to yeah i mean again this is a this is one i'd love to do another episode on but to, to your point i mean the data are clear. Uh, this is one of the most stressful occupations there is. It's also one of the most joyless now. And if you want to talk about strong emotions in this country, what's evoking strong emotions is things like private equity buying practices and then forcing doctors to work harder and emptying, you know, siphoning off the profit to the private equity group. That is something you can get doctors to talk passionately about for much longer than you can to get them to talk passionately about the newest monoclonal antibody for urticaria or something like that like the, the the real emotions that are being felt in the healthcare space around day-to-day -day working practices are frustration are disappointment are sometimes rage you know it's really an interesting sort of cocktail but it's fairly negative and to your point i think something that andrew and i've discussed many times and this might be a good note to end on is Part of our job is to make the doctors understand we're on our, their side, not just that we're trying to put a pen in their hand and like, just write the name of this drug here. But but actually that like they do feel short of allies and we, we should really be positioning ourselves to be someone that they can trust and who is listening to them, not just trying to use them as a script machine to our benefit. And I think that's something we should keep in mind as we put these ads together that, you know, their doctors are quite smart people. They're very good at reading situations and advertising and stuff. And they know when we're trying to use them as a tool, like we're your best friend, write this. You know, I think and, I think there's a genuine partnership that um, they appreciate when we do it right. And And what's our role as communicators to populate culture, populate doctor culture to make things just feel that little bit better yeah you know what can we do to what can we do to help well if you're a doctor listening both andrew and i and Sanika think you're doing a great job and we want to thank you for taking care of all of us uh especially because we're usually at our worst when you see us so thank you for that and uh yeah for breaking the code i'm brad davidson and I'm Sonika Garcia. Thanks so much, Andrew, for, for joining and for that insight. That was awesome. Pleasure. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Breaking the Code 
is a podcast by Havas Health and Youth Medical Anthropology Department. Created and produced by Brad Davidson, Sneaky Garcia. Content editing done by Catherine Rossi. Post-production audio editing done by Gabriel Allen Cummings. And inspiration by all of you. Thanks for listening and your continued support. If you enjoy these episodes, we would love to hear from you. Please leave a rating and subscribe. Until next time.